Hey there, thanks for showing up and welcome to the Holy Shed, the littlest parish in Christendom. Mostly nestling at the bottom of a rather lovely little garden in Somerset, where it's a little bit bleak at present, but hey, without being crass, you've got to feel pretty good, haven't you, that Ukraine won the Eurovision Song Contest. I mean, whether you're a fan of the thing or not, and I have to confess, I don't think I'm ever going to sit through another whole one. Uh, but, you know, and little old us in the UK came second. Oh, my goodness. When I glanced down at one stage and saw poor old Germany on Nilpois, it brought back, you know, years of me kind of glancing in to see how the UK had done and, uh, you know, uh, felt rejected and spurned and all that kind of thing. But hey, this week I decided to splash out and get my wife, not for the Eurovision, but um, I decided to splash out and get my wife a new wig. <laughs> what do you think of it? <laughs> like it? <laughs> She's always loved to blend in, you know. Anyway, thinking about the people of Ukraine on a more serious note, it's so great that um, the band in Eurovision won the popular vote, hands down, which says really how much people across Europe and in other parts of the world, actually, because I never realised that Australia was part of Europe anyway, uh, to see that the, the popular vote went so massively to the Ukraine, which says how much, as I say, we're all feeling for them at this time. But hearing yesterday about uh, also the massive numbers of, of Russian soldiers lost so far, um, I have to say that also moved me because I thought about all those mums and dads, you know, wives, kids, siblings, friends back home. Russian soldiers are, as I see it, fodder for a basically evil, egotistical, vain venture of nonsense. And I use that word rather than several expletives. Our family has got friends in Russia. Maybe you do. Uh, the people that we know hate what Putin is doing, you know. And I guess it was ever thus, really. You know, that you've got one thing going on at the level of, you know, leaders and generals and all these people with their grand designs and ordinary people who end up uh, being the fodder for it all. So let's light a candle for our world, guys. Uh, for people suffering all kinds of pain all over the place. Let's pray for peace. Let's pray for peacemakers. May there be many more of them. Uh, for the downfall of wretched dictatorships. Uh, for solutions to apparently intractable problems. For Just for hope, really. Defiant imagination, even in the face of despair. So however that resonates with you, whatever you're thinking about now, I invite you to light a candle with me and take a few moments of quiet as we open our hearts to the sufferings of people on all kinds of sides of conflicts all over the world.
God grant us the serenity to live fully and generously through circumstances we cannot control. Hope to keep on imagining better times for ourselves and our world and courage to change what we can instead of simply leaving it to others. Amen. <coughs> Excuse me. I have to tell you, keep away from Covid if you can because for six weeks now this thing has been carrying on in various ways with me and it's bloody wretched. But anyway, not stopping me. Since the publication of my book, How to Be a Bad Christian and a Better Human Being, uh, one of the commonest accusations that I face, you know, wherever I am, is that I'm preaching a gospel of good works, which, oddly enough, I reckon most non-church-going people would take as a compliment. I mean, is there a downside to spreading a message about doing good deeds in the world, especially right now? I can't see it. But anyway, we know, don't we? We know what they're getting at. You know, preaching a gospel of works is really code for you've lost the plot, Dave. You know, you're watering down the message. More specifically, you're saying that people can earn salvation through works instead of by faith in Jesus. Well, no, actually, that isn't what I'm saying. But look, there's a lot of stuff going on here when we think about this subject. So let's just clear a little bit of space. And to start with, you know, by salvation, these people mostly mean you get to go to heaven when you die instead of going to hell, which, as you know, uh, isn't the way that I understand salvation. And actually, I don't think for one moment that it's how Jesus understood salvation either. As I've said many times, a central emphasis on the afterlife always tends to distort the message of Christianity. To start off with, it turns the whole thing into a religion of reward and punishment instead of a call by a loving God to live in a particular way in the world and to be part of helping to mend that world. You know, Jesus never said, here's how you can avoid hell or you know, here's how you can get to heaven. He said, follow me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, lend without expecting anything in return, don't go around judging people, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, uh, live righteously, as the Living Bible puts it. But of course, people never denounce my gospel of works using the words of Jesus. It's always Paul that they bring in to, you know, they marshal to to bring the accusations against me, especially things like where he said, you're saved by faith, not by works. Uh, now, as with the whole flesh and the spirit issue that we looked at, I don't know, two or three sheds ago now, this appears to be another Pauline dualism, you know, this time between faith and good works, and they're set over against each other. But once again, I believe that this is getting Paul completely wrong. For a vast number of Protestant Christians in particular, the slogan, justification by faith not works, is, well, it's a virtual definition of the gospel, of Christianity. You know, if you mess with that, well, there may not be any way back. But here's the thing. I believe that 
if we are going to properly understand Paul, we need to get him out of the 16th century Reformation and put him back where he belongs in the first century. Now, you've heard that before in these little talks about Paul, haven't you? Because I think that's where so many things have gone wrong and go wrong with the way that Paul is interpreted and misinterpreted. Paul becomes basically a 16th century or even more a modern Protestant Christian instead of being uh, allowed to be what he is, a Jewish Christian from the first century. And, you know, this is what a whole field of biblical studies has engaged in over recent decades, especially through a theological movement which is known as the New Perspective on Paul. Uh, I'm not going to immerse you in the whole cat and caboodle of that debate. I mean, I can flag up some books if you're really interested in it. Um, I'm not going to engage in a detailed biblical study. That's not what we're really about trying to do here in the shed. I just want to, I suppose, give you a, a hermeneutical steer. Uh, <laughs> hope you enjoy that. Um, and and really get to the bottom line of, of what is the outcome of this new perspective on Paul. Well, prior to this, prior to the new perspective initiative, a consensus in New Testament studies treated Paul as a Christian convert who was at odds with Judaism. Okay, so very much lifted out of Judaism, forgetting anything about him being a Jew, he becomes the archetypal Christian. And, um, and the first century, for a long time, the consensus was that, that the first century Judaism was seen as, you know, sterile, legalistic, rules-based religion, which is what Paul was opposed to. That's how the story has gone. So as A.J. Levine, a lovely Jewish New Testament teaching friend, often points out, it's a case of Christianity set up there, shining bright, at the expense of the Jews and Judaism. And the fact is, Paul's perspective, or his per perceived perspective or attitude to Jews and Judaism, has basically fueled centuries of anti-Semitism in the church. Martin Luther's published attacks on Jewish people. I don't know if you've even seen little quotes from it. There's a lot around. But Martin Luther's published attacks on Jewish people are horrendous, uh, most notably in his pamphlet, which was called On Jews and Their Lies, which actually many historians now see as influential in the development of anti-Semitism in the pre-war Lutheran Germany. The backdrop to this whole faith and works issue in the New Testament is the debate in the early decades of the church about Jews and Gentiles. From the start, the Jesus movement was something clearly rooted in Judaism. I mean, obviously, uh, Jesus was a Jew. But before long, non-Jews were being attracted and drawn into this uh, new movement. And of course, that began to present problems. Do you remember Peter's tussle with, uh, with God in his vision about eating unclean foods? Which, of course, ended up with Peter baptising uh, 
the pagan centurion Cornelius and all of his household and then on the naughty step having to explain himself to his fellow apostles as to why he had seemingly opened the door to Gentiles because the assumption was this is this is an in-house thing this is a Jewish thing so it was already happening but it was Paul who really led the surge toward Gentile inclusion. He described himself at one point as the apostle to the Gentiles. And, uh, well, you know, there may be trouble ahead, because that's, you know, Peter faced it on one level, now Paul is facing it on a completely different level. Suddenly, you know, all hell let loose. Um, AJ Levine rather actually has a little bit to say about this. Watch this short video of her talking about this. The relation of the church, a very Jewish church, to Paul's Gentile converts remains a difficult relationship. Some people from the Jewish tradition and probably some who even converted from the Gentile tradition expected the followers of Jesus to behave as Jesus did to be circumcised, to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, to keep the dietary regulations, in effect, to convert to Judaism. And Paul and his associates said, no, that was totally unacceptable. For Paul, God is the God of both Jews and Gentiles. For the Gentiles to convert to Judaism would suggest that God was only the God of the Jews. So it's not clear to Paul that the Jews down in Jerusalem will accept his converts and therefore it's not clear that they will accept the offering that the converts have made. Paul doesn't know what will happen in Jerusalem. So this is the first great schism, if you like, or, or the first great conflict, at least, in early Christianity. The so-called Judaizers, the apostles of Jerusalem in the church there, insist that you know gentiles who wish to join the jesus movement must be circumcised and follow the dietary laws and keep sabbath and so on and so forth while paul on the other hand holds that gentiles can follow this clearly jewish jesus who himself upheld jewish law by the way uh, without actually becoming jews without going through the the rituals of that paul you know, he wasn't anti-Jewish. Of course not. He was a Jew. Uh, he wasn't anti-Jewish law. He boasts in Philippians, isn't it, uh, about his Jewishness, about his, you know, Pharisaic qualifications. I mean, he was a deeply rooted, qualified uh, Jew who actually went about persecuting uh, the early followers of Jesus. As A.J. Levine would point out, Christians didn't invent a gracious God you know that's how it's often put you know that's the Old Testament that's law this is the New Testament this is the grace of God revealed in Jesus AJ would reflect reject that perspective uh, and say Christians didn't invent a gracious God the Jewish God the God of Jesus Christ by the way is a God of grace who drew the Jews into a covenantal relationship with God that they did not earn they did not do anything about that's grace right uh, as James Dunn says uh, the New Testament scholar justification by faith is not a distinctively Christian teaching 
you know, from a Jewish point of view, keeping the law isn't a way of entering the covenant. That's not how you become part of it. It's a way of practicing the covenant which you have been graciously drawn into. Big, big difference there, by the way, guys. And just on that, I mean, a quick note about this word justification, which I think if you're anything like me, you, you know, it's too easily got mixed up with the whole narrative of substitutionary atonement. But this isn't how Paul uses the word in his letters. Christa Stendhal, who is a, you know, was a former bishop of Stockholm and a Harvard New Testament scholar, he argues because he's, he's one of the kind of new perspective sort of theologians, if you like. He argues that while Paul uses the word justification frequently, more than anybody else by far in the New Testament, it's not actually being used in connection with sin, which is where I've mostly sort of heard it connected. It's in connection, he says, with the issue of Jews and Gentiles. And he says, you know, if you go through it and look wherever you find this justification by faith, you'll find it's not far away somewhere from the issue of Jews and Gentiles. And uh, Stendhal presumes that the doctrine of justification by faith originated in Paul's theological mind as a result of his grappling with the problem of how to defend the place of the Gentiles in the kingdom of God, you know, because that was the task with which he felt charged. In other words, it's Paul, justification by faith is Paul arguing that non-Jews can be welcomed into the covenant of grace, be justified, be accepted, be embraced in God's love in the same way that Jews are without becoming Jewish. So that's that's how, uh, you know, Bishop Stendhal argues the word justification is being used by Paul. So look, the bottom line of this is quite nicely stated by Jimmy Dunn, James Dunn, when he says that Paul's insistence that justification, divine acceptance, is not as a result of works of the law. He's really arguing that justification or acceptance is not dependent on particular observances of the law, like circumcision and food laws, you know. Uh, that's, that's how, you know, James Dunn says Paul is using this phrase, you know, that what he's trying to do is to say this, this is what this whole thing of works is about, you know. So in Paul's letters... You know, he doesn't address the more general question of good works or good deeds. The works that Paul speaks about, like in Galatians and Romans, have a particular reference in a specific context, all to do with this business of Gentiles and Jews, which is why it's tragic that these references were taken up uh, in the 16th century and transformed into a dogmatic point about the uselessness and futility of human effort in good deeds uh, so that we've landed up in a position, which is what I grew up with really, where, so I'm often told by, by critics of my books and words, incredible acts of courage and compassion, for instance, or justice or beauty or tenacity are ultimately immaterial to God 
unless the person's a Christian, a person of faith, and then they become important and okay, you know. So, um, yeah, it's hugely significant, I think, that Martin Luther excluded the Epistle of James from his Bible, which he described as an epistle of straw. And he did that because James speaks of faith without works being dead. Show me your faith without works, he says, and I, by my works, will show you my faith. And it's very clear from the entire context that he's definitely speaking about good works in a more general sense, about caring for orphans and widows in distress, for instance, about not showing favouritism toward the rich and influential. Uh, he's speaking about conflicts and disputes, about speaking ill of people. The only reason Luther excluded James from his Bible was because it contradicted his misinterpreted understanding of Paul. But James actually echoes more of the words of Jesus in his epistle than any other New Testament text outside of the Gospels. And when I turn to Jesus, I find much about the importance of good works. Apparently, in the original Aramaic that Jesus and his followers used, there is no word for salvation, actually. Salvation was understood as a bestowal of life. To be saved was to be made alive or to become fully alive. Uh, for the earliest Christians, therefore, Jesus wasn't the saviour as we've come to think of that, but the life giver. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus never speaks of receiving salvation. He called people to follow him, to be part of his way, and therefore come alive. In more contemporary language, Jesus liberated, saved people from the enslavement of ego, you know, the drug of self-importance, and invited them to discover the path of vulnerability, the path of love, of generosity and service. The cross speaks of this, of course, more than anything else, the abandonment of ego, winning by losing, love given without measure. Indeed, the whole Jesus event imagines a God separated from self-asserting power, a God whose only existence is love. This is the path Jesus invited his followers to enter and be a part of, the path of salvation. I mean, when Jesus invited himself to the home of Zacchaeus, you know, in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Luke, who was a swindling tax collector, uh, and Jesus went there to have a nice cup of tea, it resulted in a total change of heart for Zacchaeus. He promised, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I'll give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll pay back four times as much. And Jesus responded to this by saying, today salvation has come to this house. So you see, salvation had nothing to do with an afterlife experience for Zacchaeus. It was about a present reality, a new quality of life that saved him from the misery of greed, selfishness, and the consequent loneliness that, that comes from that. On another occasion, in Luke's Gospel, a wealthy man asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus told him to keep the commandments and also to sell his goods and distribute the takings among the poor. I'm not really sure why 
certain Christians still have this story in their Bible, actually, you know, because it sounds jolly well like salvation by works. But Jesus wasn't talking about that. He wasn't talking about earning salvation. That's a completely unbiblical idea, both in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament. Um, he was describing instead what salvation looks like as a life practice, a life of goodness unselfishness and compassion. This is a saved life, whereas greed, indifference and self-righteousness lead to a life basically lost. Now, I'm not, I'm not denying the importance of faith. I'm simply saying that I hear a lot about faith from people who look like hmm, pretty much anything but followers of Jesus at times. Meanwhile, I see many others who make no claim to faith whatsoever but who live as if they were followers of Jesus. Which do I see as the truer and the more genuine? I think that goes without saying. Some strands of Protestantism in particular have basically made a God out of words. You know, these things have to be believed. These doctrines or beliefs have got to be, you know, uh, acknowledged. Otherwise you can't be a Christian. To which I basically say, balderdash you know or something a bit like that i come back to basically the main point in my book how to be a bad christian which is surely whatever we mean by god god has to be more interested in who we are and how we live than what we believe now listen i don't want that to be you know, like an even greater burden on you. I mean, acquiescing to some doctrines isn't really all that demanding in practice. Uh, living as a follower of Jesus, on the other hand, hmm, that can be very demanding. But look, you're not supposed to be bloody perfect, you know. If you're like me, you'll get it wrong. You'll screw up sometimes. You'll feel like you're a million miles from the goal of where you'd like to be. But that's not the point. I love the words of the poet uh, Rainer Marie Rilke, who says this, says religion is something infinitely simple and ingenious. Religion is something infinitely simple, ingenious. It's not knowledge, he says, not content of feeling. It's not duty and not renunciation. It's not restriction. But in the infinite extent of the universe, it is a direction of the heart. Wow, I love that. Religion, faith, is a direction of the heart. Which means that even when you stumble, you stumble a little closer towards your goal. You know, you pick yourself up, you forgive yourself. And remember that, guys, that's very important. You pick yourself up, you forgive yourself, and you keep on going. It's a direction of the heart. So I hope that helps, you know, to know that this whole dichotomy that we've been presented with by uh, in Paul about, you know, works and faith um, is not about the whole general issue of how we should live good lives, doing good deeds. It was something that was a very specific issue within the church at that time about Jews and Gentiles and how Gentiles are justified, included into the covenant that God has 
you know, with, with the Jewish people, because God is the God of the Jews as well, um, that he does that through grace and not through becoming a Jew, if you like, you know, going through rituals like circumcision or whatever. So let's have a prayer, should we? And this is the prayer that I've got for today. This is a lovely picture, by the way, of a rabbi and his Arab friend in Jerusalem. Um, men on opposite sides of a divide who found each other as neighbours, as brothers and fell in love with each other. Loving God, in you there is neither Jew, Christian, Muslim nor any other religious tradition. In you is neither Catholic, Protestant, Evangelical or complete misfit. You look upon us all, recognising our flaws and qualities. Labels play no part with you. You look upon the direction of our hearts, regardless of the thoughts and ideas that preoccupy our minds. You are the deep river that flows unseen, the silver cord that runs through every life regardless. In our stupidity, we imagine that we are your favourites, but in a way, we are. Help us to see our own selves mirrored in the smiles, frowns and anxieties of others. Help our hearts to find you wherever you are, hidden in full view. And may we not recoil in the surprise of encounter, but flourish in wonderful new possibility. Amen. Okay, well, I think we should drink to that, don't you? So if you have a little bit of something handy, pour it now. So I'd like to propose a toast to the God of grace, known by Jews, known by Christians, known by many other names. I toast to God who doesn't really care much about names. I toast a God who embraces us all for who we are in our hearts. And my prayer is that we will find that deeper, greater unity within each of us uh, from our different traditions, from our different personalities, different families, different backgrounds. Because, you know, God is the God of all life. To life, Lachaim. So, thank you very much for being with me today guys uh if you like what i'm doing and you want to support us you can do it by buying us a coffee the link is on your screen now but it's also always at the top of the posts on the holy shed facebook page and um i think i mean i'm very happy to to do other things about paul i think i've probably completed what i wanted to say about paul but maybe it's raised more questions for you and if you've got questions that you'd like me to address around the subject of paul please do uh, message me email me let me know and i'll see what i can do 
But uh, I think next week what I want to do actually is plunge in a slightly different but another great sort of seething pool, which is the book of Revelation. Now, I'm not going to do a great Bible study on the book of Revelation, but I think that what I'm all about here is, as I said earlier, trying to give kind of a hermeneutical steer, trying to give you a different handle to get hold of things like this in the Bible or in the Christian faith that uh, than the ones that you've been given, which hopefully will enable you to find uh, the possibility of other ways forward in your faith. So uh, I want to talk about the world we're living in right now and the book of Revelation. So, hey, join me for that. And that's just about it, really. Um, I'm going to play a blessing in a moment, which is some incredible words on compassion by Deepak Chopra, the writer and poet and, and so forth. And it's his voice that is speaking that blessing. I used it in Soul Space last week. And uh, I think it's, it's, it's a good steer for us all as we get on with our lives this week in the world in which we live. So, um, yeah, have a good week. Be kind to yourselves. Be kind to other people around about you. Stay human and... I'll see you soon. I will see a stranger today through the eyes of compassion. I will remind myself that this stranger has parents and people who love her, just like me. I will remind myself that this stranger has moments of joy, just like me. I will remind myself that this stranger has moments of anguish and suffering, just like me. I will remind myself that this stranger will one day grow old, just like me. I will remind myself that this stranger will go through the cycles of illness and recovery, just like me. I will remind myself that this stranger will one day die just like me. Through the eyes of compassion, I will know this stranger not as a stranger anymore, but as a living soul, just like me.